0: Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Vaughn Greenwood was deemed the first killer to target L.A.'s Skid Row. Vaughn's killing spree extended over 1964 to 1975, murdering two people. Then he would go underground. Not being active for 10 years that anyone currently knows of, he was called the Skid Row Slasher. Then, ten years later, another killer would pick up the moniker of the Skid Row Stabber. This time, the suspects thought to be involved with the case would lead to questions of wrongful convictions and wrongful imprisonment of a man who was labeled as the new Skid Row Stabber. The case remains largely unsolved to this day, with questions about the use of informants, causing many to doubt the investigators ever even had the copycat killer known as the Skidrow Stabber ever in custody. Today on The Jury Room, we dissect the case of Bobby Joe Maxwell and whether or not he was a copycat serial killer of the original Skidrow Slasher, or a man wrongfully convicted for a crime he never committed. After going 10 years without killing, the original Skid Row Slasher Vaughn Greenwood would strike again with a lot of ruthless attacks that earned him the moniker, the Skid Row Slasher. He was only caught when he tried to break into Burt Reynolds' home and dropped an envelope with his name on it. After Von Greenwood, someone else seemed to pick up on Skid Row where he left off. A copycat came to the area and decided to complete the bloody business that Von Greenwood had begun. This man would wreak havoc in the area and negatively impact many innocent people's lives. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the Earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. This story begins on the chilly morning of October 23rd, 1978 in Los Angeles, California. The victims of these horrendous murders were all homeless men. Most of their bodies were discarded like trash in back alleyways that were all located near each other. Their murders go as follows. On October 23rd, Jose Cortez, a 50-year-old man, was stabbed to death. On the 24th, 46-year-old Bruce Emmett Drake was also stabbed until he took his last breath. The stabbers struck again on November 4th, murdering J.P. Henderson, a 65-year-old man. On November 9, 1978, David Martin Jones, a homeless man, curled up to go to sleep by the Los Angeles Downtown Public Library when suddenly someone began to stab him to death. Right before he was murdered, three homeless men, who were friends of David's, were also spending that night bundled up by the library. They said the man who allegedly attacked their friend was a large black man who said in a soft, low voice. That his name was Luther, a peacemaker, and he was from Puerto Rico. The men began to give conflicting statements. One witness said the man had a Spanish or Caribbean accent, while another said he did not. Thomas Jones, one of the witnesses, said he looked at the killer in the face while it was pitch black outside for about 30 seconds. All the witnesses described the murderer's walk as strange and sluggish. After talking to three witnesses, the man slowly walked over to where David was attempting to go to sleep. It wasn't long before David's friend heard him yelling that he had been stabbed. They ran over to their blood-soaked friend who was gasping for air. When Thomas asked David who stabbed him, he responded, the guy that just left. The next victim of the stabber would be 36-year-old Frank Floyd Reed and 49-year-old Augustine E. Luna. Their murders were conducted that day. On November 17th, an indigenous man named Milford Fletcher, who was 34 years old, was murdered. On Thanksgiving morning of November 28, 1978. Discovered on a park bench at the Los Angeles City Hall Mall was Frank Garcia's body and his empty wallet. He had been stabbed 20 times. In early January 1979, found on the bathroom wall of the Greyhound bus station written in graffiti, My name is Luther, I kill winos to put them out of their misery. The words were scrawled across the wall. A calling card of sorts for the Skid Row stabber. The last known victim of the copycat Skid Row stabber was Luis Alvarez. He was only 26 years old. He was stabbed to death on January 21st, 1979. In April of 1979, a man by the name of Bobby Joe Maxwell was arrested. The man who would eventually be put in prison for the murders. But questions loomed throughout the case as to his actual guilt. Was it possible that investigators had arrested the wrong man? And if so, two questions loomed. Why was Bobby Joe Maxwell thought to be the Skid Row stabber? And if Bobby wasn't the Skid Row stabber, then was the killer still at large, even after all this time? Bobby Joe Maxwell was unemployed and originally from Tennessee. He moved to Los Angeles in 1977 was well-known around Skid Row. He had previously spent two months in jail for assault with a deadly weapon in August of 1978. Four months later, police saw Bobby hovering over an intoxicated man who was asleep on the sidewalk. Searching Bobby, they found a double-edged stainless steel cork-handled knife. Bobby was charged with carrying a concealed weapon and thrown in jail until January 8, 1979. No murders were committed in December leading up into most of January. This led police to believe the killer had probably been locked away during that time, and it would turn out that Bobby Joe Maxwell happened to fit that bill. After police connected the dots of Bobby being incarcerated at the time the killing stopped, they began watching him after he was released from jail. The police arrested him a few months later for the murders on April 4th, 1979. A knife was found on Bobby when he was arrested, and it was said to be compatible with the stab wounds on every victim except two. Police went and searched Bobby's sister's home, taking a sweatshirt, a cap, tennis shoes, and a logbook. On this logbook, Bobby had written, Satan, praise be unto you. This made investigators believe and say outright that Bobby was a Satanist. There was a lot of judgment cast onto Bobby for his beliefs due to some prejudice and ignorance on what Satanism really is and the fear that overcomes some people when they hear the name Satan. Whether he was actually a Satanist isn't known. A graphological test was so-called proof that Bobby was the one who wrote the sinister message on the Greyhound bus station bathroom wall. It's important to note that graphology is not grounds to arrest somebody. It is merely the analysis of handwriting that can determine a person's personality traits. It is not conclusive evidence into crimes. There is no scientific evidence currently that backs this analysis up as conclusive by any means. Bobby was made to stand in a lineup while the witnesses listened to each man in the lineup say, My name is Luther. The three homeless men who had heard the killer's voice and saw him said those men weren't him. One witness even said, you've got everyone up there that doesn't look like him. Six months later was the preliminary hearing and Bobby was talking in the courtroom. Thomas Jones, one of the witnesses ears perked up claiming Bobby's voice was definitely the voice of the killer. Again, it's important to state that this type of evidence is exceedingly circumstantial, as eyewitness testimony is difficult to completely rely on. Just the same as polygraph tests, they are not always accurate, and oftentimes have proven to be fallible. In this instance, the witness saw the killer in the dark and only heard his voice once it's very possible and more than likely that over time the memory would become dimmer and less reliable. With months having gone by, there's no way Thomas could have correctly identified a voice without the other concrete evidence supplied to support these accusations. On the contrary, another witness wrote a note to the prosecutor which said, I sure hope you have the right guy, because if you do, He sure did change a lot in the last six months. Bobby Maxwell's sister got on the stand to testify. She said her brother always carried a knife and a friend of Bobby's also testified in his defense to point out. It's not out of the ordinary for people to carry a weapon, especially one such as a knife, to protect themselves when they are walking around the neighborhood especially if someone is homeless because there's a possibility of being attacked by someone. It was for Bobby's own protection. When Frank Garcia's body and bare wallet were found on the park bench, there were muddy shoe prints all around. The prosecution's expert testified that the shoe prints were a match with a pair of Bobby's shoes and the measurements of his stride were consistent as well. The defense's expert argued that the muddy shoe prints were too indistinct to show anything identifying and to make an accurate comparison of stride without knowing the speed the person was walking or running at the scene of the murder was impossible. Frank Garcia's wife was never shown Bobby's Bic lighter that had been taken from him the day he was arrested, but when she testified, she said Bobby's lighter looked like her husband's. Frank's stepson was shown a lineup of big lighters, but he wasn't able to pick out the correct one. From David Jones's murder scene, police collected blood and cigarette butts to test, but none of those were linked to Bobby Joe Maxwell at all. So very little, if any evidence, actually physically linked Bobby Joe Maxwell to any of the murders, and even the witnesses generally did not see him as the man they remembered as the killer. In January of 1984, Bobby's trial began. Testifying on the stand was Sidney Storch, who was one of the most notorious jailhouse informants in the history of Los Angeles County. During a four year period in the mid 1980s, he testified in at least a half a dozen trials, each time claiming the defendant had confessed to him in prison. An inmate named Daniel Roach said, It seems that half the world just confesses to Sidney Storch. Sidney took the stand testifying that he shared a cell with Bobby in 1983 for about a month. One day, according to Sidney, Bobby was reading a newspaper article about the Skid Row Stabber case, which mentioned there had been a palm print discovered on a public bench by one of the crime scenes. Sidney said when Bobby read that, he confessed he made a mistake by not wearing gloves. The following is Sidney's statement. Earlier in the evening, there was a newspaper article that had his name in it that was passed down from another cell. He pointed to one particular description in the article. He told me that in this particular instance, that the police had said they found a palm print of his in an area near one of the people he was accused of having harmed. He felt that he wasn't prone to this kind of mistake, that he didn't make that kind of mistake because he wore gloves with the fingers cut off so as to keep his hands warm and leave his fingers free. The prosecution jumped on Sidney's testimony almost in a victorious manner, exclaiming he just proved Bobby admitted responsibility for each of the 10 murders that had been committed. And Bobby Joe Maxwell was in fact the Skid Row stabber. The trial was lengthy And the jury returned with their verdict. They concluded Bobby was guilty of two counts of murder and one count of robbery. They found him not guilty on three counts of murder. The jury couldn't reach a verdict on five counts of murder and three counts of robbery. But they found two special circumstance allegations. Those of the multiple murders and murders committed while engaged in robbing the victim rules. Bobby Joe Maxwell was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole on both counts of murder, with the sentences to run concurrently. All of the evidence against Bobby was unconvincing and circumstantial. However, Bobby would be known as the Skid Row Slasher for many years following his trial and conviction. Citizens and the media blamed all the murders on Bobby even though there was no physical or material evidence connecting him to those crimes. Bobby appealed his convictions and sentence to the California Court of Appeals. And in March of 1991, they upheld the trial court's judgment in full. Shortly after, the California Court of Appeal rejected Bobby's petition for a new hearing. Bobby filed a petition for review with the California Supreme Court, but it was denied in June of 1991. Bobby kept trying anything he could in an attempt to prove his innocence. In October of 1991, he filed a habeas corpus petition in Los Angeles Superior Court. Again, another denied petition. Bobby tried filing another habeas petition in October of 1995 with the California Supreme Court. In return, the Supreme Court issued an order to show cause returnable to the LA County Superior Court. In May of 1996, the issue presented would be whether or not Bobby was entitled to relief based on the allegation of Sidney Storch, the jailhouse informant giving a false testimony at the trial. There was an evidentiary hearing held at the Los Angeles County Superior Court which went on for two years, spanning from August 1997 to November 1999 in february of 2000 over 20 years after his conviction the superior court delivered a 34 page written ruling concluding that while Sidney storch might have become an established liar and sophisticated jailhouse informant he had not lied at bobby's trial on april 20th 2001 Bobby Maxwell filed a second habeas corpus petition in the California Supreme Court. It was rejected on December 19, 2001. One justice opposed, writing that she was of the opinion an order to show cause should be issued. Bobby disputed Sidney Storch's testimony, claiming that the two shared a cell on November 30, 1983, for four hours, not three weeks and that the jail housing records confirm his account of events. Although the housing records could be construed to support his account of the events, because the state submitted evidence that those records were unreliably kept in 1983 and suffered from frequent technical glitches. They could not say that the Superior Court made an unreasonable determination of the facts when it found the housing records were inconclusive. After testifying before the grand jury, Sidney Storch was listed on the 1988 Grand Jury's Investigating Informant Abuse List, and he was among the informants that the grand jury suggested that the District Attorney consider prosecuting for informant abuses. As a result, Sidney was the first informant to be indicted for perjury following the 1988 grand jury investigation. He would never have a chance to face those charges. Sidney died in a New York jail before he could be extradited to California. Sidney Storch's testimony was the primary reason for Bobby being convicted of these killings. To put this case in context, it's important to discuss Sidney Storch and the use of jailhouse informants in. Los Angeles County in the 1980s. Sidney Storch had a long and public history of being deceitful, starting with his discharge from the US Army in 1964 for being a habitual liar. By the time Bobby's trial in 1984, Sidney was 37 years old and a reported longtime heroin addict. He was a repeat offender, with 4 felonies and 13 arrests under his belt his crime of choice was forgery and he was well known with the los angeles police department forgery division from both a defense and prosecution standpoint In 1981 and 1982, Sidney provided information to the LAPD about forgery rings. In 1983, Sidney was arrested by the Los Angeles Police Department for, among other crimes, impersonating a Central Intelligence Agency officer and pretending he was Howard Johnson, the son of the well-known Howard Johnson hotel chain. When he was apprehended, and placed in a cell with Bobby Joe Maxwell. Sidney was in possession of a fake California driver's license, forged checks, and stolen credit cards. The detective who arrested him described him as a sophisticated forger and testified he would not trust anything Sidney Storch said unless you could corroborate the information with some source. Following Sydney's 1983 arrest, his public defender negotiated a guilty plea in which Sydney's 5 pending cases would be secured for sentencing and the court would enforce a total combined sentence of 36 months in prison. However, Sydney independently made a deal for a 16 month prison term, almost two years less than the deal his public defender had been able to secure for him. In exchange for his reduced prison term, he agreed to testify for the prosecution at Bobby Maxwell's trial. After Sidney had testified at Bobby's trial, he testified for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office in no less than six cases, several of them high profile. By 1985 or 1986, Sidney was classified as an informant, or K-9, and was housed in the K-9 Module, otherwise known as Informant's Row. Informants row was for informants who fabricate material evidence by 1988. However, Sidney's informant days were over. He was caught fabricating lies as he testified for the prosecution in the unrelated case, People versus Sheldon Sanders. And as a result, he was marked by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office as unreliable and unusable and was later indicted for perjury the state maintained that the los angeles county superior court's conclusion following the hearing conducted on bobby's state habeas petition that sydney gave a truthful testimony at the trial and gave accurate and sufficient determination of the facts Sidney perjured himself multiple times at Bobby's trial, and his goal every time he was a witness in a murder trial was to book fellow inmates. The evidence of his lies later on under oath did not determine the nature of his testimony at Bobby's trial, but it remained relevant. It revealed a willingness to commit perjury and validates Bobby's argument that Sidney had a go-to motive that he used when he was a witness for the prosecution at Bobby's trial. The preliminary examination then remains whether it was fairly unreasonable in light of the evidence disclosed over the course of the evidentiary hearing for the Superior Court to find that Sidney Storch testified truthfully at the 1984 trial when he stated that Bobby had confessed. The difficulty with that was not whether Sidney became a professional snitch who frequently committed perjury, that much was clear. Rather. The question was whether, as the state court had decided, in 1984, Sidney remained an unsophisticated informant who was not yet utilizing the practices for which he would later be indicted. That would require them to decide whether the state court's factual determination was fairly unreasonable, a standard which affords the state court determination the utmost respect. Despite this polite review, respect does not by definition disqualify relief a federal court can disagree with a state court's credibility determination and when guided by the anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act it can determine the outcome was unreasonable or that the factual premise was flawed by clear and convincing evidence on occasion it has been decided that a state court's factual determination was unreasonable it was also recognized that the unreliability of jailhouse informants who are themselves incarcerated criminals with important motivation to garner favor and on occasion have granted habeas or other relief where a defendant was convicted as a result of fabricated or potentially fabricated testimony Based on the review of the state court records, and in particular the evidence that was presented at the Superior Court's evidentiary hearing, it was determined that the state court's decision that Sidney testified truthfully was an unjust determination of the facts. There was just too much evidence of Sidney's pattern of perjury to assume otherwise. At the time of Bobby's trial, Sidney was already using the booking formula that he would later others and for which he would become famous. The housing records show that Sidney had physical proximity to Bobby and openly admitted that he was in possession of a newspaper article about the murders. The newspaper article itself mentioned all the specific facts to which Sidney testified, particularly that the police had found Bobby's palm print on a nearby park bench. And finally, Sidney contacted Deputy District Attorney Sterling Norris with the news of his cellmate's spontaneous confession and negotiated his own deal in exchange for his testimony. The Superior Court haphazardly cabined Sidney's perjury methods to a time period starting after 1984, and in spite of the numerous known lies Sidney told at Bobby's trial, unreasonably found his testimony truthful. In 1984, Sydney was 37 years old and already a career criminal. He had committed crimes of deceit and had been arrested at least 13 times and convicted of at least three felonies he told numerous proven lies at bobby's trial was known as dishonest at the time of trial was an experienced informant according to the testimony of three lapd officials and employed his signature method to book bobby If Sidney was a rookie informant at the time of Bobby's trial, his inexperience showed not in his honesty, but rather in the lack of creativity in the lies he told. He simply repeated facts about the Skid Row stabber killings covered in a newspaper article he admitted to having, and he offered no details about any of the crimes that were not already public and in widespread print. Sidney testified at Bobby's trial because he wanted to obtain a benefit of reduction in his sentence, and because he was dishonest, he was willing to say or do anything to obtain that goal. He didn't care if his testimony put an innocent man away for the rest of his life. As the court noted, informants are cut from untrustworthy cloth and must be managed and carefully watched. A failure of caution by the prosecuting authorities, as was widespread in Los Angeles County in the 1980s, resulted in extensive failure to prevent criminal informants from falsely accusing the innocent from manufacturing evidence against those under suspicion of crime and from lying under oath in the courtroom. As Judge Stephen Trott explained in a Law Review article on the topic, The most dangerous informer of all is the jailhouse snitch who claims another prisoner has confessed to him. The snitch now stands ready to testify in return for some consideration for his own case. Sometimes these snitches tell the truth, but more often they invent testimony and stray details out of the air. Sidney lied about Bobby's confession in order to reduce his own jail time. He went on to testify for the prosecution, and to lie in many other cases. He became one of Los Angeles' most infamous jailhouse informants, and he operated at the height of the county jail's house informant scandal. The court couldn't reasonably conclude on the finding that Sidney testified truthfully at Maxwell's trial was supported by the record. AEDPA did not eliminate federal habeas review, where there are real credible doubts about the validity of essential evidence and the person who created it aedpa does not require the court to turn a blind eye based on the record before the state court it was unreasonable determination of the facts to find that Sidney Storch was telling the truth at bobby's trial in 1984 having concluded that sydney's testimony was false next was to consider whether being convicted on the basis of his false testimony violated bobby's right to due process under the 14th Amendment. Bobby Maxwell argued that his conviction based on false material evidence violated his due process rights under the 14th Amendment and the court agreed. First, because the state court's decision was based on an unreasonable determination of the facts, they proceeded to resolve Bobby's related due process claim without the respect of AEDPA otherwise requires in light of the state court's reliance on incorrect facts the court did not know what the state court would have decided and there was no decision they could accept Bobby Maxwell was convicted of murder based in large part on the testimony of a jailhouse informant. In that case, the court determined that regardless of whether the prosecutor knew the informant had given false testimony, one could not reasonably deny that Sidney Storch perjured testimony at Bobby's trial, determining whether there was a reasonable probability that without all the perjury, the result of the proceeding would have been different. The court concluded that the perjury of Sidney Storch weakened confidence in the verdict and, due to that, permitted Bobby's conviction to stand on the basis of such evidence did violate Bobby's due process rights. The court reversed the district court's denial of habeas relief. Explaining that a government's assurances that false evidence was presented in good faith are little comfort to the criminal defendant wrongly convicted on the basis of such evidence. A conviction based in part on false evidence, even false evidence presented in good faith, hardly clears fundamental fairness. Sidney was found to have perjured himself when testified that Bobby confessed, determining that to permit a conviction based on the uncorrected false material evidence to stand is a violation of a defendant's due process rights under the 14th Amendment. Now the court had to consider whether or not Sydney's testimony was important. A constitutional error resulting from the prosecution's failure to correct false testimony requires a new trial only if there is reasonable likelihood that the false testimony could have affected the judgment of the jury. Sidney was the make-or-break witness for the state. His testimony was the centerpiece of the prosecution's case. Nearly all of the other evidence against Bobby was circumstantial. In deciding whether to file murder charges against him, the prosecution acknowledged in written notes that were discovered during the evidentiary hearing that its case was weak from an evidential standpoint. The only evidence that linked Bobby to the murder of David Jones was the in-courtroom voice identification of Bobby by a witness who had been unable to pick him out of a lineup where he spoke, and the fact that Bobby possessed a knife consistent with David's stab wound. The only evidence that linked Bobby to the Frank Garcia murder was Bobby's palm print on a nearby bench in an area he admitted spending time at. Some muddy and consistent footprints and a generic Bic lighter found in Bobby's pocket at the time of arrest, none of these were groundbreaking evidence that 100% proved any of guilt. In sum, Sidney's testimony that Bobby confessed to making a mistake in the commission of Frank Garcia's murder was the prosecution's prize evidence. Also, Sidney's testimony went to both the Garcia and Jones murders. In fact, Sidney's testimony was offered to establish Bobby as the culprit of all ten of the Skid Row stabber killings. Specifically, the state argued during closing arguments and continues to argue in its belief on appeal that Sidney's testimony was offered primarily to prove that Bobby had confessed responsibility for each of the 10 murders. Sidney's testimony was important, not just because of the lack of evidence, but also because the content of his testimony. The importance of the defendant's own confession is probably the most damaging evidence that can be admitted against him. The importance of Sidney's testimony was highlighted by the prosecution in the closing arguments when the prosecutor emphasized Sidney's testimony. The jury also asked to see the transcript of his testimony during deliberation, highlighting its importance. Ultimately, it was the Superior Court's finding that the claim of Sidney Storch testifying truthfully at Bobby Maxwell's trial was an unreasonable determination of the facts in light of the evidence that was presented at the state court evidentiary hearing, and Sidney's false testimony resulted in an unfair trial. The state's reliance on perjured testimony undermined confidence in the verdict, because there is a reasonable probability that Sidney's perjury affected the judgment of the jury. The denial of Bobby's habeas petition was reversed. Next, Bobby Maxwell argued that the prosecution violated his due process rights under the Brady violation when it failed to release material evidence about Sidney. The state court offered a reasoned decision for denial of the claim. Conducting an independent review of the record to determine whether the California Supreme Court's summary denial of Bobby's Brady claim constituted an unreasonable application of the Brady violation. The court believed that the state court could not have reasonably determined that the repressed evidence relating to the deal Sidney received and his prior cooperation with law enforcement as an enforcement was not substantial. The failure to tell this information undermined confidence in the verdict, and the district court's denial of habeas relief was reversed. There was three components of a Brady claim. The evidence at issue must be favorable to the accused, either because it is exculpatory or because it is impeaching. The evidence must have been suppressed by the state either willfully or inadvertently, and prejudice must have ensued. The prosecution's suppression of evidence favorable to an accused person violates due process where the evidence is material, irrespective of the good faith or bad faith of the prosecution. Evidence is relevant if there is a reasonable probability that had the evidence been disclosed to the defense, the result of the proceeding would have been different. A reasonable probability is one that is sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome of the trial. Whether the suppressed evidence was important had to be considered collectively, not item by item. Bobby Maxwell argued that the state failed to disclose that the 16-month deal Sidney was given in exchange for his testimony was not the original deal offered to him, but rather a deal Sidney independently negotiated for himself and Sidney's prior informant history. At the time of trial, Sidney maintained that his main purpose for testifying was to do his civic duty, and he completely denied the existence of any deal with the prosecution. He did ultimately accept during cross-examination that he had received a reduced sentence of 16 months for his pending cases in exchange for his testimony. Yet, Sidney never did disclose that his 16-month deal was the second deal he was given, and more importantly, one he had negotiated by himself from his public defender. In fact, when he was asked directly on cross-examination, Sidney denied any prior deals and the prosecution never corrected this lie. At the evidentiary hearing, Arnold Lester, the public defender who represented Sydney at the time of Bobby's trial, testified that he had worked out a guilty plea to combine Sydney's five pending cases in a total sentence of 36 months. Lester went on to testify that this was a reasonable sentence given the number of counts and Sydney's prior record. Arnold testified that Sidney, however, continued to work out privately the 16-month sentence deal that he ultimately received. Bobby was not informed before or at trial of the prior 36-month deal, and the prosecution never corrected Sidney when he said that there was no prior deal. Bobby argued that the state violated Brady when it failed to disclose that the 16-month deal was Sidney's second deal, one that he privately negotiated without the assistance of his public defender. In general, Brady requires prosecutors to disclose any benefits that are given to a government informant, including lenient treatment for pending cases. The question here is whether the prosecution's failure to disclose the details of the prior deal, specifically Sydney's negotiation of a subsequent deal, was significant. Bobby was informed at the trial of the deal that Sidney ultimately received. Nonetheless, the fact that Sidney went after an additional benefit to himself independent of and subsequent to the agreement worked out by his public defender could have provided Bobby with impeaching evidence relevant to Sidney's motivation for testifying and of a different character than the other impeachment evidence which came to light. Sidney testified that his initial contact with anybody about testifying in the Bobby Maxwell case was with the chaplain's office in terms of this. I was looking for guidance, more or less. When asked during cross-examination if he had any intention to lighten his load, i.e. sentence, Sidney adamantly stated that his intentions were not to reduce his sentence. Initially no, sir, and I will say strongly that way, initially no. Evidence that Sidney had already secured a plea agreement and came forward to testify at Bobby's trial for the sole purpose of working a new and better deal would have directly impeached Sidney's testimony for why he came forward. Additionally, the details of Sidney's plea negotiations would have helped to establish his sophistication and directly contradicted the naivety he admitted at trial. The fact that Sidney had worked a deal with Norris without his public defender would have been the only evidence other than the evidence of Sidney's informant past, which was also suppressed of his informant sophistication. Such evidence was subsequently different from Sidney's other lies, which came to light during cross-examination. He was not some innocent inmate who happened to overhear his cellmate's confession and then to struggle with the moral dilemma of whether to come forward, seeking religious guidance as he represented. Sidney knew that his testimony against Bobby was bartering material. He used his know-how and connections to negotiate a better deal in sum the evidence the government held would not simply have been cumulative of the impeachment evidence brought out during cross-examination of sydney at trial rather it would have created substantial doubt as to sydney's credibility particularly with respect to his professed naivety The details of Sidney's own agreement with prosecution, the fact that he had negotiated the following deal separate from his public defender, would have allowed defense counsel to discredit Sidney on a novel basis. The prosecution's failure to correct his false testimony about his prior deals was prejudicial. Bobby also argued that the prosecution violated his due process rights when it failed to disclose Sidney's prior informant activities. Bobby said this evidence would have impeached Sidney's credibility and showed him to be a sophisticated informer. The Superior Court did not dispute that Sidney was an undisclosed police informant, but the court characterized him as unsophisticated because there was no record of him receiving any benefit in exchange for his informant activities prior to Bobby's case specifically, Sidney stated that he had never testified for the District Attorney and represented himself as someone new to the informant world. The prosecution did not reveal that. Although Sidney may technically have not testified for the state, he had on several occasions aided in investigations and acted as an informant on numerous previous occasions. At the evidentiary hearing, Bobby learned for the first time that Sidney assisted the LAPD's forgery division in the investigation of multiple forgery cases prior to his trial. In light of the importance of Sidney's testimony, evidence of his prior dealings with the forgery unit could have been used to discredit himself had it been revealed at the time of trial. Also, it would have provided additional evidence that he was a sophisticated informant with developed connections and relationships within the LAPD. Such information may have led Bobby to investigate Sidney more thoroughly and led to the discovery of the information that only came to light at the evidentiary hearing, namely that Sidney was an experienced informant with a history of lying. Sidney's involvement in prior forgery investigations contradicted his representations at trial that he had never worked as an informant for the district attorney's office. It also provided additional grounds for a jury to question Sidney's credibility. Grounds which relate to the prosecution's failure to disclose the fact that his plea deal was a later one that he negotiated. In determining whether the suspension of impeachment evidence is sufficiently prejudicial to rise to the level of a Brady violation, the court had to analyze the totality of the undisclosed information the totality of the undisclosed evidence in the context of the entire record. The prosecution admitted that the evidence against Bobby was weak, that he had consistently maintained his innocence, and that the police testimony about the date of the palm print was speculative. For these reasons, and those reasons explained previously, Sydney's testimony was crucial to the prosecution's case. The prosecution failed to disclose multiple pieces of critical impeachment information that could have been used to undermine the credibility of Sydney Storch. Analyzed collectively, the withheld impeachment evidence that Sidney had negotiated himself a better deal coupled with the evidence of his undisclosed informant past would not simply have mounted the impeachment evidence introduced at trial, which included lies about his level of education and number of felony convictions, but would have created substantial doubt as to his credibility for different reasons. The withheld evidence went to Sidney's sophistication and motivation in his capacity as a prosecution informant, and not, like the other evidence produced at trial, to his general tendency to be dishonest, even if the lies did not provide a novel angle of attack on Sidney's credibility, which the court believed they did. Since Sidney's testimony implicating Bobby was critical to Bobby's conviction, the jury's assessment of Sidney's credibility was crucial to the outcome of the trial. If the jury had not believed Sidney, Bobby may not have been convicted. The prosecution's failure to disclose this impeachment evidence undermined confidence in the outcome of Bobby's trial, and the California Supreme Court's decision, to the contrary, was an unreasonable application of Brady. Sidney Storch was one of the most infamous jailhouse informants in Los Angeles history. In particular, he tended to go after high-profile cases. The Skidrow Staver case would have been just such a case, and his testimony at Bobby's trial was a textbook example of the booking method that Sidney helped make famous. Based on the evidence brought to light during the lengthy evidentiary hearing, it was concluded that the state court's finding that Sidney did not give false testimony was unreasonable determination of the facts in light of the evidence and there is a reasonable probability that this false testimony affected the jury's verdict because the state convicted bobby on the basis of false and material evidence in violation of his due process rights the district court was made to grant bobby habeas relief on that claim it was also decided that the prosecution withheld material evidence in violation of brady the district court's judgment was reversed and remanded with directions to grant a writ of habeas corpus in 2012, directing the state to provide Bobby Maxwell with a new trial in a reasonable amount of time or to release him. In 2013, prosecutors got new indictments against Bobby, blaming him of three of the murders that had resulted in a mistrial in 1984. In 1984, when the jury was unable to reach a verdict, the prosecution said it would seek to retry Bobby for the Frank Garcia and David Martin Jones murders that were reversed by the appeals court, and also would try him for the murders of Hote and would also try him for the murders of Jose Cortez, Bruce Emmett Drake, and Frank Floyd Reed. In December of 2017, Bobby Joe Maxwell had a heart attack and went into a coma. In 2018, a judge decided to dismiss the murder charges against Bobby Joe Maxwell since he only had about six months left to live. Bobby's sister Rosie called their mother right after the judge made the announcement. Bobby's attorney stated while Mr. Maxwell was hospitalized, there were sheriffs sitting with him 24-7 and she had to get permission from the sheriff as to when she could come visit. Now, he is a free man and she'll be able to visit just like any other visitors. If Bobby Maxwell were to recover, prosecutors said they would be seeking to refile murder charges and Bobby's attorney stated confidently they would be ready to prove his innocence. A month later, the prosecutors dropped all criminal charges against Bobby, putting a close to the decades-old legal saga. Assistant DA Robert Grace said... He was glad to see Bobby's case closed. However, he was concerned for the victim's relatives. I do hurt for the family members of the victims because they had anticipated getting their day in court and now they are not going to be able to get that. Bruce Drake's daughter, Cindy Polson, said she and the relatives of the other victims had been denied justice. While the media has only chosen to focus on the current conditions of Mr. Maxwell and how his family feels, there are several families involved who had no choice about the murder of our family members nearly 40 years ago. Now, Mr. Maxwell, nor my father or the other family members will get their day in court. Bobby Joe Maxwell never came out of his coma, never learned that he was a free man, having died in April of 2019. To this day, the identity of the Skid Row Stabber is not known. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.